If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Or as we said last week, page 1. Genesis 1. Let me um, just start by saying there's so much here that I want to talk about, but I can't. Um, partly because there's more written in, in, about Genesis than any other book of the Bible. And uh, if, if I started to talk about everything that I was reading and stuff, first of all, it might be boring to a lot of people. Uh, other, it would just take forever to go through. So I'm really selective, and we have to be really selective when we're doing um, these, these sermons. But if you think about it, um, God was really selective when he gave the creation account to Moses, to the, to the children of Israel, to us. Um, he didn't go, hey, I'm going to give you uh, um, a, a giant book about how I, I created. It was, it's, a, it's a page. It's a really thin uh, creation manual. So, um, but we have a book downstairs called The Lost World of Genesis 1 that I really recommend that you get, that you read, uh, especially if you have questions about Genesis chapter 1. So um, the, the first two sermons, the introductory sermons to Genesis, are a bit nerdy, are a bit technical, but I think they're very, very, very um, important that we go through. So let me read um, our text today, and then let me pray one more time before we get started. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, and I might dip in even into verse 3 because it's so good. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Let's pray. God of creation and of our redemption, our maker, our ruler, our lover, we pray, Lord, that you would um, so give us the faith to just hear what you want to say tonight, that you give us the mind, the ears to hear, eyes to see. I pray that we would leave just knowing that we've been created by a God who loves us, who formed us in our mother's womb, who, who oversaw every single thing about this cre- created world, and you love it. And so I pray that you would um, give us even the implications of what that means and how we live this, this out. I pray you'd make us worshipers tonight. We love you, God. I, 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 again, I just submit my mouth to you, my mind to you, and I pray that you would, we really want to hear from God. We don't want to hear from a man tonight. So Lord, speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when you're um, at a meal with somebody, let's say uh, it might be a at a meal with someone, getting to know them for the first time could be one of the eat-ups that we do after church, or maybe it's in community groups. We started community groups this last week, and a lot of times for our first community group, we just kind of go around, everybody's like, tell me about yourself, and how, where are you from, and what do you do, and all this other stuff, or maybe you, you're on a first date, and you're sitting across at a coffee house or at a restaurant, and, and you start the conversation like this, so tell me about yourself. And you've probably been in these, these conversations a lot. And when somebody asks you, okay, tell me about yourself, what do you say? How do you start that conversation? Do you say, well, I have blue eyes and blonde hair, I'm 5'4", and I weigh... No, you, you, don't, you don't do that. I don't recommend that you do that. That will be the end of that conversation, probably the end of that date. Um, it's just weird, okay? No one does that. And we know that. Whenever someone says, tell me about yourself, what we do is we start telling our story, don't we? Like, well, I, and they start telling stories about ourselves. See, the only real proper way to answer the question, tell me about yourself, is to share a story or a series of stories. And when we ask 
tell me your story. Even we do that, even in like, it's just so commonplace. We even lead in with that. We don't even say, tell me about yourself. We say, tell me your story. I sit down with people throughout the week, and I I ask them, tell me your story. I, I actually tell leaders and staff, anyone who wants, before you judge anyone or get angry at anyone, just know their story first. You'll have at least a footing, somewhere to stand to go, well, at least I know who they are and what they're about. And when you say, tell me your story, you're not asking them to make up a story. You're not saying, hey, would you make up some fictional tale about yourself? Make up something great about yourself and tell me about it. Now, here's a little dating tip. Don't do that, okay? It's not good to start dates with lies, just saying. And we don't, we don't mean that. We don't mean like, hey, when I say, tell me about yourself, I'm not saying make up a story, What we mean is this, tell me the true story of your life. That's what we're saying. And by sharing these stories with one another, sharing our personal narratives, we come to know one another. We get to know each other. We get to know and understand how a person is now. But not only that, not only do we get to know how a person is now and what they're like now, but we learn by learning their story, we know how he or she became to become who they are now. And what we also do is we find ourselves in their story. We're like, yeah, I went through something similar. Yeah, I felt that way too. We might even place ourselves in the timelines of their stories. I remember when I first spent time with Pastor Tarek and we shared a meal. Well, actually, we didn't really share a meal. We had our own meals. But we, we kind of hung out and we, and we had lunch together. And so my first question was, tell me your story. And they told me his story, which is a really cool story. You should hear it sometime. He tells me a story, and I remember just plugging into his story. I remember where I was then. I remember what God was doing in my life when he was doing that in your life. I wonder how our roads kind of went like this and then crossed. You find yourself in other people's stories. This is how we get to know people. Tell me your story. This is how we get to know people. This is how we learn someone. The Bible, as we started last week in Genesis, is a story. The Bible is a story. It's a true story. It's a story of God. Now, when God says, I want to tell you who I am, I'm going to reveal myself to you, he doesn't go, well, I have, uh, you know, white white hair, and I have eyes of fire, and he doesn't do that. He didn't start that way. It It might get there at the end, but it doesn't start that way. He starts by telling a story. You want to know who I am? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then I said, let there be light, and there was light, and I saw the light was good. He starts by telling stories of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and then into, into Egypt and then out of Egypt and calling the, the, the prophets and the priests and the kings. He tells his story by sharing stories. We get to learn him through narrative. That's how God tells about himself. So when we get to the book of Genesis, it's a single story. The Bible is a single story from beginning to end. It's not a whole bunch of stories crammed together that don't have anything to do with one another. It's a single story from Genesis to Revelation. And this story shows us, this story reveals to us, this true story teaches us about who God is. Because we as collective humanity have a rather diluted and diminished and corrupted concept of God. We said this over and over again when we were going through the book of Mark when we first started the church in Mark's gospel. I said that we make Jesus in our own image all the time. 
We, we take a Jesus, we take Jesus that we've heard about, and we kind of fashion him into our own Jesus. A Jesus that doesn't challenge us or disagree with our practices. And when we do that, we have a deity that can never change us. We have a deity that can never challenge us, that can never confront us, and we can never be transformed by Jesus because we made him into our own image. See, if the God that you believe in always agrees with you and your desires and your practices, you do not believe in the God who created you. You believe in a God that you created. And this is why it's so important to learn God through Genesis. We need a revitalized concept of who God is. And I believe that Genesis is a very appropriate place to start. And this is how it starts. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning. This is how the story begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is how the story begins. In the beginning, God created. So the Hebrew root word here is, beginning is bereshit. Now, I probably butchered that word in Hebrew. Every time I try to say Hebrew, I get someone who speaks Hebrew like, that is, and they're, they're pretty angry about it too. That is not how you say that word. So I apologize in advance. But if you translate this word the beginning, it's best translated a period of time rather than a point in time. It actually means an inauguration. A good way of, of maybe um, uh, translating this is saying once upon a time. That's what in the beginning means. And an indiscriminate period of time. But here's the point of that. A beginning is only a beginning in relation to a middle and an end. You can't have the beginning of something without having the end of something. A beginning assumes an end. So if the Bible is a story, and it is, then God had already, when he began to tell his story, he already had, when he said in the beginning, he already had in mind how it would end. He already had the story, how it unfolds, and then how it ends. Look how it ends. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. See, when the Bible tells us the story of God and what God's about, it starts with creation and ends with new creation. I mean, think about this here. It starts here with creation and ends here with new creation. You have creation, new creation. But you have a lot of stuff in the middle, right? We would all agree there's a lot of stuff in the middle. And what you find out is this. Okay, if, if it starts creation, ends new creation, your questions are, why did God have to recreate it? What happened here that God had to redeem it, that God had to resolve it, that God had to restore it? What happened in the middle? But before you even get there, it says something else. I think this is fascinating. If the Bible starts with creation and the Bible ends with new creation and it's one story and God's telling it it's his story, this fact alone suggests that creation is crucial to understanding who God is. God's like, do you, want me to, do you want me to tell you about who I am, my character? Let me, let me tell you this. In the beginning, I created everything. And at the end of the story, I recreated everything. Don't you think you need to know about creation to get God? Like, if you really want to understand God, you need to understand creation. Because that's how the story starts, and that's how the story ends. So you're like, okay, okay, fine. I want to learn about creation. I'm going to go to Genesis 1 to learn about creation, and, and, you, and you should go to Genesis 1 to learn about creation. The problem is we come with all the wrong questions. 
We go to Genesis 1 and we say, how did this happen? How did, okay, so I'm going to Genesis 1. How did all this happen? It happened Big Bang. It happened evolution. Six literal 24-hour days. Long days that lasted millions of years. In this room, this size, I'm sure that there are different views on this point. So what do you believe about creation? Well, I believe it was six literal days with one day off. So God worked six days, took a day off, created six 24-hour days. Some people go, well, no, 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 no. It's long days. Those days were long, like six billion years old. Those days, those little days made a long period of time. Some of you guys are like, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's really about, I, I learned in school, it's evolution, and I've been studying evolution. This is just all just, just this myth. This is, all, this is all here. It's just story. It's poetic. It's figurative. It's not literal. But Genesis 1 was never designed to teach us how. This was never designed. Genesis 1 was never, you and I always think, and we're going to get to this towards the end. We always think like this. We always think of how, but Genesis was never designed to answer how. Genesis 1 was always designed to teach us who. Who did this? Who created the heavens and the earth? I don't think Genesis really addresses the how question as much as it resolves the why question. Why questions are always way more important than the how. This creation narrative says that what you really need to know about this world is why God made it. What, what is this world for? And how do we function in the purpose in which it was created? See, Genesis is addressing this central question. It's this right here. The question is this. Who did this and why? That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is addressing. Who did this and why? See, Genesis 1 is not designed to answer the questions of how. It's not designed. It, it can't hold the weight of, of how long did it take to create it because it was never designed that way. It's designed to answer the questions of why. Why was the cosmos created at all? And what is the meaning of this creation? See, this is, this is, this is the most important point of Genesis 1. What is the meaning of creation? So I want to make these points really simple. I'm going to give you two points this evening. Last week I gave you three, but actually it was two because I cheated a little bit. Last week I said point one was Genesis is about God. Point three is Genesis is about God. And I want you guys to get these. I want these points to stick in your mind. So point one, what's the meaning of creation? Meaning of creation is this. It means that God created. Simple. It means that God created everything. Creation means that God created everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created it. God made everything that you see. He made it all. God created and made everything that you see. Now, Hebrews and John say that God made everything ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. Notice I said Hebrews and John. Hebrews chapter 11 and John chapter 1 say that God created everything that we see out of nothing. Hebrews, let me show you, Hebrews 11. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Everything that we see that was made was made by invisible. God made everything out of nothing. Hebrews 11, John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Listen to this. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. God created everything. God is responsible for material, the material origins of the world and the entire universe. God is responsible, responsible for it all. 
Therefore, this world was not created by random chance, nor is it a product of time, energy, and chance, nor is it an accident. The story of God rejects all of that. Francis Collins, I quoted him last week. We have his book downstairs. Francis Collins was a, a former atheist, and he was, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. And he says this in an interview, quote, I can't imagine how nature, in the case of the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that it had to be outside of nature. From his studies, this is, and, and now, I know this carries some pretty heavy implications. I understand when I say that, some of you guys are going, okay, whoa, whoa, wait. I know, okay, I know what you're trying to say, but do you know what you mean when you say this? There, there are some pretty heavy implications here. The first implication is actually a pretty good implication. The first implication of this is you have purpose. You're not an accident. You have purpose. God has created you with purpose. That you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's good news. No one's sad about that. No one's like, I'm kind of bummed about that. Everybody's stoked on that point. That's a good implication. But what about this implication? What if I said this? The second implication is this. You have to give an account to your creator. You can't live any old way you want. He created this world with certain order, with certain function, and we're called to live inside of that function. And you're like, whoa, wait, time out. That's where, that's where we have beef right there. You can't, just, you can't just say that. See, the reason why this even has to be a point a huge point in a sermon, why this is the most hotly debated subject of our time. The reason why Dawkins gave a TED Talk on being a militant atheist against this point. The reason why this is such a huge point of contention is that the story that most of us live in is a story of a very modern, western, humanistic story. That's most of our stories. Our stories that we live out of is a very modern Western, materialistic story. Let me explain what I mean by this. Missiologist Leslie Newbegin worked at, 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 as a missionary for India for many years. And he wrote quite a bit on this idea, this understanding of grand narratives. He called them meta-narratives in order to understand their lives. He said this, everyone lives out of this really, really big story. And you, and you find your place in this big story. And so the way you react and act towards life and all these situations of life are actually part of a bigger story that you believe in. He says actually this, quote, in, uh, quote of his, in his book, Gospel in a Pluralist Society, he says, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story which my life story is a part? What is the real story? Well, think about this. Your story, you live out of a, a bigger story. Let me, give, let me give you some flesh on this, okay? Uh, let's take the topic of divorce, example of divorce. How do you see divorce? It all depends on the story you're living out of. For the follower of Jesus, the Christian, even when divorce is necessary and warranted, it sucks. Why? Because according to the story of God, the bigger story, divorce isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's not God's ideal. It's always tragic in some way, always. Even though it might even be good in a sense, it's bad, always. Why? Because that's not the way, that the bigger story says that's not the way God made it. And sin enters in and it wrecks things and it's not the way it's supposed to be and it sucks. Even though it might be even 
necessary or even warranted by Scripture, it still sucks. But what if that's not your story? What if your story is a more individual, consumerist story? Well, then, that's pretty much the Western cultural story. Therefore, when you think about divorce, it's often portrayed as something rather positive. A courageous step, even, people write about. A, a step of personal growth. So you can't have both of these stories. You live out of one of these stories. So you take that and you apply it to every part of your life. Human identity. How do you know who you really are? It depends on what story you live out of. What about sex and sexuality? Where the rules, what's right, wrong, good, bad? What about sex and sexuality? Well, it depends on what story you're living out of. What about roles in marriage, death, money, justice, and redemption? It depends on your bigger story. So this is why when I say a sentence like this, this world was not created by random chance or as a product of time, energy, or chance, and it's not accidental. Now, the reason why, when I say that sentence, most of our reaction is this, prove it. Prove it to me, then. If that's your claim, then prove it. In our Western humanistic story, we grew up with the belief that human reason is the measure of all things. That is the most important thing. Science trumps everything. That's how we grew up. We have been persuaded to believe that truth about origins can only be packaged in scientific terms. That the only cosmological reality is a scientifically informed reality. So when I say, we come from God, you go, prove it. But the irony is, your capacity for reason was given to you by God. That's the irony. Your capacity to even argue with me, your capacity to even think about these things was given to you by God. See, it's impossible. Impossible. If you want to say scientifically, you can. It's impossible for matter to create mind. It's impossible for matter to create thought and reason and emotion. It's impossible. So your capacity for reason came from your creator, and it's proof, indeed, that you have been created. Now, I need to insert a little bit of nerd detox here. What I, when I've been studying the book of Genesis, I, I get um, a little bit nerded out when I've been reading these books, technical books on this sort of stuff. And so I need a little bit of detox from this. So I want to do that with you right now, a little bit I call a nerd detox. So you're not too nerdy, okay? And I, I, I found the best place to nerd detox is in the book of Psalms. So Psalm 89, let me read it to you. Let's just bask in it for a second. Let this wash over us for a little bit. Psalm 89 says this. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. And the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The psalmist declares, it's all yours. My body is yours. This city is yours. My life is yours. This world is yours. Animals are yours. My pets are yours. My house is yours. It's all yours. Why? Because you made it all. It's all from you. Then he says this, it's beautiful. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Righteousness and justice are ultimate realities. Did you know that? Love and faithfulness are ultimate realities. The reason for justice and the reason for righteousness, 
the reason that we can feel love, that we can measure love, that we can receive love, that we can measure faithfulness, the faithfulness of a person, the faithfulness of the morning, the faithfulness of God is because they are real realities. The reason that we fight for justice and righteousness for the weak and the oppressed, for creation and ecology, for mankind. Yes, we even fight for animals, but just don't get carried away. The reason why we do all that is because they're foundations in God's creation. Love and faithfulness are real things because they are laid in the foundations of creation by a creator. They are at the core of who we are. They are at the very core of this vast universe. So you can measure love and faithfulness and justice because God placed that into the fabric of creation. And that's why the psalmist declares, you created it all and then you wove into all of it justice so we can know what's right and wrong. You wove into it love that we can feel emotion. You wove into it faithfulness so we can know your faithfulness. The faithfulness of a morning, the faithfulness of a spouse, the faithfulness of a friend. You wove that into creation. The story of God says that you were created. And you'll never have an identity until you realize that simple fact. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity into our hearts. He placed eternity into our hearts. But then it goes on to say this. I love it. It says, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. He's placed eternity in your hearts, but you, you you can't really understand it all. Not from beginning to end. It's impossible. That's the first point. Next point, what does it mean that God created everything? It means that God purposed everything. That God has purposed everything. See, not only did God create everything out of nothing, but he also gave everything purpose. He also gave everything function. Now, pay attention here real quick. This is what I believe Genesis 1 is talking about. Genesis 1 is talking about God giving the world function. Due to our reason-oriented mind, most of us come to Genesis 1 since it's at the beginning and talks about creation in terms of how. How did God do this? Well, it must be material origin. God must must have created material here. How is material, the material of creation created? Now, when we do that, when we go to Genesis 1 and go, I'm thinking create equals material things. When we do that, we have loads of problems and questions, don't we? You probably learned them in fourth grade. Everyone knows these problems. I'm going to point them out because they're fun, okay? One problem is this. What exactly happened in Genesis chapter 1-1? And then Genesis chapter 1, 2. What happened between verse 1 and verse 2? Because verse 1 starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're like, okay, it's created. But then verse 2, it says the earth was without form and void. You're like, wait a second, time out. He created everything and then he created it. It's all chaotic and formless and void. And what's going on there? And some people go, well, that, uh, there's a gap theory there. There happened like 7 billion years between verse 1 and verse 2. Like, what? Where did you get that from? It's just there. So this is what happens when you look at this materially. Like, I, in the beginning, God created. The word create must be material, so therefore, I have a lot of problems. Second problem, there's plenty, but I'll just, I'll just point out three. Genesis 1, and in Genesis 1, you have the sun and the stars created on day four, but you had light created on day one. That's, that's pretty clear, right? 
lot of you guys that have read that, you're like, oh, wow, look at that. Let there be light. And the stars are there. The sun. That's weird. Where did that light come from? Well, some people go, well, it emanates from God. It's God said, let there be light. Well, then you have a problem with the word create then. Because if God is light, then he's creating light. That makes no sense. And you also have a problem because he calls the, the light day. You're like, wait, light's not day. Day is a function of light. But God calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. And then he says he separates light and darkness. But light and darkness can't coexist, so how does he separate them? What does that even mean? Materially. Another problem. Genesis 1's outline of creation and Genesis 2's outline of creation are completely different creation accounts. This is the one that trips everybody up. In Genesis chapter 1, you have God says he created man three days after he created vegetation. But in chapter 2, it says that God created man before he created vegetation. You're like, wait, what gives there? I mean, those are totally opposite things. This is the problems that we approach Genesis 1 with. But what if Genesis 1 wasn't about material origins? What if Genesis 1 was not um, about how this, the, the, the material origins of, of the earth started? What if it was about the function, the functional origins of the earth? Let me give you some technical talk here. It's very important technical talk. Translation is the most basic form of interpretation. Translation is the most basic form of interpretation. Let me explain what that means. So if I translate a word, let's say create, I translate that word material creation. I just interpreted all of chapter one with one word. You see how I did that? Like in the beginning, God created. Well, that, that word created must mean material origin. So that's your translation. So you just basically interpreted the entire chapter one. What if you did it wrong though? What if it didn't mean that? What if the, the most important part of Genesis 1 isn't to define the word create, but to define the word bara, which is the Hebrew word? What did the word bara mean? John Walton says in his commentary, I think this is brilliant. When, doing, when we are doing exegesis, this is a fun word that everyone should learn, try to use in a sentence this week. It basically means when you're studying the Bible, the text and its context. When we're doing exegesis, we're not asking the question, what does my belief system affirm that God has done? This is the problem, a lot of problems when people approach Genesis 1. Well, my belief system says that we do not evolve, therefore this has to mean this. That's not the question that we're supposed to be asking. Nor even what should Israel's belief system affirm God was responsible for. We shouldn't ask that either. Rather, we must ask, what is the text asserting that God did in this context? We're asking, what does this word mean? What does it mean? And we can't come to this text with prejudices. We can't come to this text going, well, I believe in evolution. Therefore, I have to interpret the text, Genesis 1, like this, in this way. I believe in evolution. I studied it. So I have to read Genesis 1 like this. Don't do that. However, don't do this either. Don't go, I think evolution is the devil and it's godless in all its forms. Therefore, I have to interpret Genesis 1 like this. This is why these two camps fight all the time. I mean, n- like just gnarly fights. Because this camp over here, the, 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 the Genesis 1 camp goes like this. We don't believe in evolution, therefore we see Genesis 1 like this. The evolution camp goes, we don't believe in God, so we see biology and science like this. Both of them are wrong. We can't do either. What we must do is, what is this text saying to the people of God about the person of God? That's how we have to approach this text. 
What does Genesis 1 say about the creation of the world? In short, what it says is that God gave function and purpose to everything we see. That's the short answer. The long answer will come next week when we talk about the whole of chapter 1. But let's finish this afternoon, this evening, with our text one more time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was over the face of the waters. If we take this verse to mean God creating equals material creation, then we would expect God to begin with nothing. But look up on that screen. Does God begin with nothing? He doesn't. When God began to create this earth, it was without form and void. If, God, if this meant material origins, then you would expect God to create from nothing. Like, meaning, in the beginning there was nothing. And then God said, let there be earth, and there was earth. But before there was light, there was the earth. See, this isn't speaking necessarily of material creation, but of functional creation. God is giving function to what he created. What he did create ex nihilo, he is now giving function to. The formless and void in Hebrew are actually two rhyming words. They're tohu bohu. The earth was tohu bohu. Almost sounds Star Wars-ish. Robert Alter, the professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at Berkeley, translates this as welter and waste. I think that's great. Welter and waste, they're two rhyming words that go together. They function together to, to convey this idea of functional non-existence. The earth was not yet functioning in an ordered system. Other instances of this word in the Old Testament is desert place, wasteland, empty space. So what is God doing here in Genesis 1? What God is doing in Genesis 1 is bringing order out of chaos. God is giving everything order. God is giving everything function. God is saying everything that he made, he's giving it order and function. See, in the ancient Near East, chaos was a central concern. The raging sea and darkness was, were all the forces of chaos. That's why in other Near East creation accounts, if you've studied them in college or in school, you always have gods that are born out of chaos. You have gods that demonstrate their power by defeating and holding at bay the forces of chaos. But in Genesis, there's not a portrayal of, portrayal of any battle, nor of some chaotic force being held back, nor is God being made from the force of this chaos. God is over it, and he's hovering over it, and what he's doing with his word is saying this, order to light, and there was order. And that's why it says, let there be light, and there was light. And he called the light day. He gave it order. And he separated light from day. He said, he gave it function and order. Light, you will function like this. Darkness, you will function like that. And he said, it was good. He rejoiced over it. He's like, oh, actually, that's, that's good design. <laughs> and then he gave function to every single thing in this earth. The way, the way that plants grow, the way the sun and the plants and, and, and the, 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 the ecosystem of the world, it's all. And he said, it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good, giving function and order to everything. Have you ever studied biology and studied how things are designed and went, wow, that's really good design? God goes, yeah, it's good. <laughs> and then you get to chapter, you get to day six, 
and God says something's not good. I'll let that hang for two weeks before we get there. You can think about that. But what happens here is this. There's chaos. There's disorder. There's welter, waste. Nothing has order or function. And it says this, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You know what that is? That is a divine, the cosmic drum roll. That's like this. I'm not a really good drum roller. I'm not a drummer, but it's like, it's like, it's like, okay, there's all this chaos. What's happening? God's like, in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was like this formless void and chaos was there. And then all of a sudden, the spirit of God was hovering over in anticipation. What's going to happen next? Let there be light. And there was light. And God's saying, you do this, that, this, do this, this, this. And he starts to give everything order, everything function in the world. Everything. Again, Robert Alter says that this word hovering over the waters is literally meaning, the Hebraic meaning is an eagle fluttering over its young. The Spirit of God was in anticipation and care, fluttering over the world and setting it right in its place, just the perfect distance from star, moon, perfect in our solar system, he just begins to shape everything perfectly. And not only did God say, let there be light and create light, he gave light purpose. He just didn't create light, he actually gave light purpose. He said, light, you're going to order the day, night, you're going to order the night. And as the story progresses, we see the ultimate purpose of this light. We see the purpose of, this, of his creating powers, of creating his light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's recreation. The God who said, let there be light, speaks to our hearts. See, I, I really believe that in our, in our church, in the city, there's a lot of people that, that want to start following God and putting their faith in God. But Genesis 1 and 2 are, especially in your studies and maybe your field of, uh, uh, your, your, your work field, you, Genesis 1 and 2 are a huge stumbling block for you. Huge. And tonight, I pray God says, let there be light. The light that's shown in the darkness over the chaos of creation shines in the chaos of our hearts, in the chaos of our lives, and says, let there be light. See Jesus Christ. See Jesus Christ, our creator and our redeemer. See him. We have a creator, and we're blind to his purposes. We live in this chaotic state of darkness until God says, let there be light. See, when Moses scribe Genesis. He did this as the children of Israel were moving into the promised land. So their question was this. God had just redeemed them out of slavery. They had just covenanted with God. And their question was, who is this God that redeemed us? Who is this God that we covenanted with? And the answer is this. The God who redeemed you is creator God. The God who called you out is your maker. 
and he's your redeemer. When I started this sermon, I said that creation is so important to knowing who God is. Now, why is it so important? Why is knowing creation important to knowing who God is? I think it's like C.S. Lewis said. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because I see it, as I see it, I see everything else. As you see creation, you see everything else. You see purpose, you see redemption, you see function, you see order, you see justice, you see where all of that has come from. By it, you see everything else. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you are our wonderful maker, our creator, our God, our redeemer, our redeemer, the one who has redeemed us is the one who made us. We're like twice yours. Not only did you make us, but you bought us back. I pray for anyone here who has this issue of faith. Give them faith tonight. May the light of Jesus Christ shine on their hearts and say, let there be light. We repent for going our own way, for thinking that our life's our own. We make up the rules as we go along. We live into our own story. Lord, may we be a church that repents and gets a part of the story of God. May your larger story just subsume all our small stories. Give us meaning. Give us purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.